I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Good day, good people. My name is Brad King, and you are listening to the Downtown Writers Jam podcast, which is now part of the Solid Listen Podcast Network. Max the dog and I are coming to you from deep inside the jam bunker on day 192 of the pandemic. Hope you are well. Hope you're taking care of yourself, washing your hands, wearing masks, doing all the things that make you not be an asshole in this terrible time. We've got a great show lined up for you today. Iris Cohen is here. Her novel, Last Call on Decatur Street, is out now. And this is the part where I tell you all about Iris's background. But you're really going to have to listen to the show to hear the whole thing. Know that she has an MFA from Columbia University. Uh, she studied creative nonfiction at the Graduate Center at uh, Cooney. She's the author of a little, The Little Clan and the book Out Now. And maybe the most interesting part, is the little bit in the middle of this about the accompanied library. And I'm just going to let you get to that and hear it because it is one of the coolest things that I've ever had appear on this show. We'll get to all that in just a few minutes. First, as you know, we have a little bit of business to cover. We do two shows every week on Monday and Thursday. There's two things you can do to help us out. Leave a written review wherever you listen to podcasts and tell your friends about us. 
We host a monthly happy hour where we celebrate authors and their work. It's free and open to everybody. You don't have to have read the book. It's just a good time. And you can find out about all of that at thewritersjam.com. While you're there, don't forget, you can buy the books of anybody who's been on the program. Click on that bookshop link. When you go through that link, you not only support local and independent bookstores across the country, we get a little scratch back, keeps lights on in the bunker, keeps Max happy, and you can sign up for our monthly newsletter. In it, you'll get book recommendations, reviews, highlights from the show, and cool things that are happening around the web. Last thing to do at the website, you can support the Solid Listen Network. Click on that Patreon button, and you'll get commercial-free episodes, special happy hours, and bonus content from everybody on the network. Now, this is the first interview of several that's coming up. They're not in order. They're not in a row. But definitely this Gen X vibe out of which I came. The people you're going to hear from, way more successful and way cooler than I ever was. But there was this vibe that happened for writers of a certain generation. And I was sort of at the end of that. And it was this zine culture, alt-weekly culture, where you went and built your writing career around all this DIY stuff that was going on. Computers, desktop computers were making their way into people's homes in the late 80s and early 90s, and there were desktop publishing software that allowed you to not just make a newsletter and mimeograph it, but you could actually design things from your home, get all your friends to write, and create these really cool zines about anything you wanted to. And out of that, or maybe around that time, alt-weeklies were sort of reaching their peak. Our city, Cincinnati, had two alt-weeklies in it and two newspapers, which tells you exactly how long ago that was. But it was in the early 90s, and there were so many outlets for people who wanted to become writers. You didn't just have to major in college, you know, major in English or creative writing in college. You didn't just have to go work for the local newspaper. Places where these structures were taught, structures that are fine and do what they're supposed to do, but if that isn't the way you wanted to write, you didn't have to do it. And it was this magical time where weirdos and freaks and all of us would just find each other and start writing and start publishing and start putting things out. And there was this coffee shop life epicenter thing where you would go and these coffee shops would all have like music sections and like used books and there'd be zines and all of these things written by people around town and there'd be readings and hoo-hahs and all this stuff. And this wasn't just where I was. This was happening in cities all over America. And this time and place was so special. And many of us now lament, like, we don't know where that exists anymore. We don't know how the culture comes together to support writers and to, and to give them that cauldron where anything is possible because you can just create what you want to. But very much like the Supreme Court when talking about pornography... I don't have to know somebody's age. I know they're from that time very soon after we start talking because there's just an aesthetic to the way in which we see the world and do things. And Iris is one of those people. 
And it was so fantastic talking to her because it just takes me back to that time and place, that sort of creative cauldron where I lived and where so many of us lived. And nobody knew what they were doing, but everybody just kept going forward. And there are several of these people coming up on the show, which I just think is fantastic because I hate the fact that we've lost that. And I don't want to lament like an old person, um, although I am lamenting and I'm an old person, that this stuff doesn't exist today. Because I'm sure it does. I'm sure I'm just not part of it. But that's weird to me because there always was a physical place where that could be created. And it wasn't just New York or Chicago or Los Angeles or San Francisco. It was everywhere. And so listening to Iris talk about her two books, which are very much about that time and place and the deconstruction of her life and the deconstruction of that time period is just, I think, so important and fascinating. And we have a little discussion about that. And I hope, for those of you who went through that, I hope this is the beginning of some nostalgia and also maybe some thinking about what we need to do now. And if you didn't go through that time, I hope this gives you a window into what it was like to come up truly in a DIY time when everything was possible, when you had outlets that weren't just corporate-controlled enterprises that would be where you had to go to make it, that writing and art and photography and music all existed both in the mainstream but in our places as well. And I realize right now I sound like I'm 150,000 years old. But that's okay because I will go to my grave talking about the greatness of that time period and about how we need to figure out how to make more of those things because that's where change happens, right? When you allow those stories to bubble out of places that have no control, that's where change happens because it seeps into the zeitgeist of the culture. It just does. And it's the minor leagues for allowing people to develop their talent so they can go on and make bigger impacts elsewhere. That is today's rant brought to you by Gen X. I know that is not why you come here, but that's what you're getting today. And now, without further ado, here is my conversation with Iris Cohen. We just came back from um, a union rally for our kids' school. The teachers are unionizing, and we uh, we had to go show our support. So we got my six-year-old and my eight-year-old to make their little cardboard signs and spent the morning doing some activism, which felt nice. Good for you. Yeah. It's always very I, – I feel like the more – I always forget that when you get out and actually participate in things, it just – it makes you feel – so much better about the world. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, I have told folks that the pandemic for all of its terrible stuff is a really good reminder of why unions are important. We have more people who are on the front line who are not making money, who have no leverage. And the disparity in wealth is not just politicians. It's because they've dismantled the one thing that workers had the ability to push back with. 
I know. I hope this reminds everybody. Um, I feel like in the last couple of decades, people had kind of forgotten about labor organizing in a way. And I hope this really brings it back to the front of everybody's attention. Um, Because, yeah, right now they need those protections. Yeah. At least the ability to redress things because... Mm -hmm. The protests and the civil unrest that's happening is a direct result of not having an ability. There's no other mechanism to push back. Mm-hmm. So, you know, not that the protests wouldn't be happening, but like those are, I think most people would say that is the last resort that they want to take. I mean, nobody sure. wants to have to go, do, you know, beg for things that you should just get. Like, yes. Um, and you. I feel like there is a quote that I can't remember from one of the Black Panthers about it being civil unrest being the voice of the powerless because it's, that's your only outlet left. Otherwise, all of this feels like the worst movie ever. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. It's hard. It's hard to stay positive in this moment. Where are your... You're down in Brooklyn, yeah? Mm-hmm. Um, is that where you're from? No, I'm from New Orleans, um, but I've been uh, living in New York for, I guess maybe it's 15 years now, although I still think of myself so much as a transplant. Like, I don't feel like a New Yorker at all, and I've heard from other people that it's also that New Orleans is one of these kind of places that when you're from New Orleans, you're always from New Orleans, and you're just sort of temporarily somewhere else. And so I'm always kind of surprised when I realize how long I've been up here. But it's been a while, yeah. I feel the same way about Appalachia. Like, I, mm-hmm. you know, even though I, I'm in Pittsburgh, so I'm back in Appalachia, but, like, no matter where I've gone, I've never felt like that was my home. No, not at all. I'm just uh, just passing through any place except for New Orleans, which yeah. is my absolute home. <laughs> yeah, even like Austin is my favorite non-Appalachia place. Like that's sort of mm-hmm. that's the place that I think of as like my adult chosen home. But even when I'm there, it's always I'm always like, yeah, you know, I'm not really Texan. Uh huh. Well, Texans would agree with you. I feel like that's another another place where they're really like, you could live here for seventy years, but you're still not a Texan. Yeah, Texas is its own nation, so like they are very keen on like regional difference. Yes, yes, they are. I have a lot of family. My mother's family is from Laredo, Texas. Oh, Um, so all of my family is in my extended family is in Houston and San Antonio and Laredo. and I spent some time in Austin, so I have had a lot of experience with the intensity of all of these Texas um, sort of patriotism. I don't even know quite how to describe it, but they are fiercely loyal to their state. Yes, it is. Uh, yeah, it is. I don't know if there's a word in our language. I'm sure there's a word in German, you know, that they can <laughs> oh, explain sure. what it is. A uh, fantastic so- compound noun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a sneeze. So you're from New Orleans. Uh, Did you have brothers and sisters? Nope. I was an only child. Oh. And what part of New Orleans? Like where? Uh, The French Quarter. Oh, so you like, you're New Orleans, New Orleans. (laughs) Yeah. You're proper. I mean, yes and no, because very few people are actually from the French Quarter. So New Orleanians are actually a little, often a little taken aback that I grew up in the French Quarter. um, Because in a lot of ways, it's not. It's not like a traditional neighborhood that kids live. I would think I was the only kid there in the late 70s and 80s. Um, So I have this weird position of being both from like the heart of the heart of New Orleans and yet in some way 
really confusing my fellow Norwegians. It's like being from Los Angeles. Like it's one of those things is like, that's where everybody goes to. But anytime you hear like I'm from there, you're like, well, that must've been a different upbringing. Yes. I mean, it'd be like saying that you were born in Disneyland or in the Hollywood sign or, you know, or Times Square. It's one of these places that exist like in the imagination and as a vacation spot and really confuses people um, (laughs) that it was my childhood home. Um, That said, it was, it does have a history of being a real neighborhood and there is um, half of the French quarter, which is called the lower quarter, um, which is a little bit further from the craziness of Bourbon Street um, and all of the sort of touristy parts. And there really is a a very nice little community of um, kind of artists and weirdos and uh, people have made it a home. Um, And that, those were the streets where I grew up. And I think that is what happens, right? Like you make home wherever you are. Like that's, yeah. you know, we sort of. And I think also it's like one of these things where like it was a very bohemian neighborhood, you know, like Tennessee Williams spent time there. William Faulkner lived there for a while. And then as, um, as it, as New Orleans started really pushing tourism as kind of their only industry, it sort of became more and more of a, of a Disneyland place, but it had this, um, kind of, uh, you know, like the way artists find cool old neighborhoods and, and turn them into home. Um, that was really what the French Quarter was like through the 50s and up through the 80s, probably. It's interesting because, you know, you think of like Brooklyn or Taos as like the novelist place. And you think of, mm-hmm. I think of New Orleans as like the playwright place. Like, mm-hmm. and I don't know if they live there, but like, there's just so many things in my head that like the zeitgeist of where things take place. And it's like, oh mm-hmm. yeah, this sort of seems to be, I don't know how true that is, but I, I know the Brooklyn and the Taos thing are true. Uh, yes. <laughs> because every time I meet a writer, I'm like, well, what part of Brooklyn you're from? Before I even know where they're from, I'm like, you've lived, you've passed through Brooklyn at some point. Uh-huh. Well, it's funny that you say that because my dad was a playwright. And so <laughs> that's where we were. <laughs> I feel like I nailed that then. <laughs> you really did. <laughs> so uh, dad was a playwright. Uh, what did mom do? Mom was a photographer. Oh, um, so they, they like full-on arted. Full-on arted. Yep. They were actually... They got married in the 60s and were real sort of beatnik bohemians and hung out like uh, in the Lower East Side in New York. And then they went to London and did experimental theater and then like bummed around Europe. And they took a freighter back to the United States and New Orleans was the first stop that it made. And they got off and said, all right, this seems like our kind of place. And then just stayed there. So that was how we ended up in New Orleans. That's amazing. Yeah. And it, it, I think it has that, it's one of these places that transplants really love, you know, there's like this real community of people moved to New Orleans to be artists and to be weirdos and to follow their own sort of distinctive path. Um, and that was definitely how my parents ended up there. And so they were also surrounded by all of these other artists and musicians. And I lived in, I lived in San Francisco. Like, I feel like it's that same kind of place. Like totally, you know, totally. Uh, you go there and you know, nobody's going to really be from there. Mm-hmm. And you sort of have these roving bands of families that kind of change and grow and morph and mm-hmm. all sort of built around weird art. Yes, definitely. (laughs) So (laughs) So it's kind of really special to be able to grow up in that environment, you know, where you really have access to people that are following their own paths. um, That, like, I just, I didn't know 
Um, well, for an example, in second grade, my school had career day where you're supposed to dress up like what you wanted to be when you grew up. And so when I got to school, like some of the other kids were wearing like doctors scrubs or dressed up like lawyers. And I went as Brunhilde because <laughs> I wanted to be an opera singer that year. Um, but that seemed like a perfectly reasonable choice growing up in my parents' environment. Like, oh, for career day, sure, you could dress like a Valkyrie because that's how we do things. <laughs> like they'd be disappointed if you didn't. Yes, exactly. It felt like they failed as parents and humans that our <laughs> child thinks she must go into the structures of civilized society. <laughs> yes. Have you found, and we'll get to this later, but now I'm interested at this moment. Did, have you found that that childhood because we, as kids, think that whatever we see is normal and what everybody else is doing, has that proven to be challenging as you've gotten out in the world? And you're like, that was a really special time and place. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Um... I think I always knew that it was not normal. Okay. <laughs> I, was, I was a real sort of quiet, kind of thoughtful, often kind of worried kid. And I was like, you guys are all nuts. <laughs> Everyone around me is crazy. I can tell that there's other worlds out there where people go to the mall and <laughs> make tuna fish sandwiches or whatever my idea of normal suburban life was. It's interesting, right? Because kids, we either you either just adapt to whatever's going on or you have that opposite reaction of like, this seems great. And yes, it's magical, but like, who's, you know, how are we paying the rent? Like, what yes. are the, like, we need to make sure that kind of like, it's, so it's not that weird, I guess, that you had that response to that. Yeah, that was definitely my, and I don't know where that came from because it wasn't, I wasn't absorbing it from either of my parents that were so sort of into their, this life that they had created. I, sometimes I guess you're just some person, some personality attributes just are more inherent. And I came out of the womb and was exactly like, okay, who's paying the rent? Um. <laughs> also, you know, kids are sponges, right? Like you take everything up. So if they had lots of people around who were like that, you may have heard them talking about like troubles and were, you know what I mean? And you just sort of pick that up. And as a kid, you don't really realize that like, Oh, 
this seems great, but I hear a lot of this other stuff going on. Yeah. Yeah. I think I definitely grew up both with like an appreciation for this amazing imaginative world that I was in. Um, and also a little bit of concern, like who's, who's the grownups when everybody is off creating a masquerade ball or starting (laughs) a play or, you know, doing that kind of thing. So I've, I've ended up becoming like, even though I'm a writer, I'm, I'm a little bit more conventional. Yeah. I like a, a structure. <laughs> I like put my kids to bed at the, at seven and you know, it's my own sort of response to my wild childhood. Yeah. It's, I think that that's a perfectly natural response, right? Like it is one of those things that like, um, as adults, we do stuff and you don't really realize how some child is going to receive that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, once my kids grow up, I'll, I'll find out what they're, getting from me now that they're going to do totally differently that I didn't even realize. (laughs) Right. But you know, at the end of the day, like parents loved you, like it was a good childhood. Like it was not like, it was fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I grew up uh, since I was an only kid and we were in this neighborhood that didn't have a lot of other kids. I was a huge reader. Um, and my parents were great about just our house was filled with books. And so I, I managed to have this really fantastic education because of this life. And I was exposed to so much culture, um, and so much art. And so I really, really value, um, having that background just sort of in place. And then I could choose what I wanted to do with it, but I didn't really have to go out and learn about the world in this way. Like I had this great cultural sort of inheritance to kind of use. Yeah. And you know, we'll get to this later as well, but like it, that's the beginning of an MFA, right? Like there's, uh-huh. it's, it's one of those, like, I don't know how people are writers if they don't read a lot. It was shocking when I finally got to an MFA program and no one had read anything. Yeah. No one had read anything. It was insane. Um, yeah. And, and like, I knew I wanted, I knew I wanted to be a writer really early. Like I think my first short story I wrote when I was eight or something. And so right at the beginning, I decided that the way to become a writer was to read everything I could to learn from them. And so I used to like go down the list in the back of Penguin Classics, you know, where they sort of list all the books that they publish and and try to work my way through all of them, figuring if these are famous, then I need to know them. And yeah, I have this thing. It's called the book journal. And it comes out every year and you write the books that you read with little Mm -hmm. reviews, but it has all the lists in the back, like the modern library, like the hundred books you should. Oh, fantastic. And I haven't read a lot of them because I read other stuff. Like I sort of, you know, like every, not every, but like many young boys, I started in science fiction and then sort of Uh like went out into these other places. And so if I showed up in an MFA program, I'd be like, I've read a thousand books. And they'd be like, Dickens? No. You know, like, yeah. like <laughs> they would start well, going that, down the list and I'm like, I haven't read any of that stuff. <laughs> I mean, nobody, nobody has read any of that stuff was also what I learned. The MFA list is like a very short list of certain novels yeah. that everyone has read. And then not many people seem interested in the classics, but that was my thing when I was younger. I was really yeah. excited. And like, it. I've gone back in my adult life and I've tried to read them just because I feel like that's you know, you should do that, but it, you know, it's been, a, but also because I'm a writer. And so I'm like, well, I'm interested in that is a, a particular history of writing. Mm-hmm. So you're doing that. So I will say on the show, I, you're the second person out of a hundred and something people that I've interviewed that have said like, Oh, I knew right from the beginning that I wanted to. Oh writer. yeah. Yeah. Oh, huh. So you're in rarefied air. I mean, people would say like, I wanted to be a writer, but like you actively were like, not only knew you wanted to be a writer, but like, that's what I'm going to do. Yeah, I was planning for it. In fact, I was planning for it so intensely that 
when I was 15, I actually fell into this deep depression because I hadn't written a book yet. Like I had decided I was going to like write the great American novel. And then I was already a teenager and decided that I was like past my prime and had failed in some massive way. And like, (laughs) it just destroyed me for like a good three or four years. I was just wrecked because I had failed in what my life's goal. So I was very intense and driven (laughs) right from an early age. (laughs) Were your parents confused by this? Uh, no, they seem to take it in stride. They were like, yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) That's funny. So were they super laid back? Um, I don't know if they're super laid back. I think they're, they're pretty intense. I feel like all artists are often sort of. I meant in terms of of like, well, you know, this crazy kid of ours is 15 and thinks she's going to write the great American novel and she's sad, like she'll be fine. Yeah, they didn't really address it much. They were like, we don't know what's going on. I don't know what to do with this part of parenting um, and sort of left me to kind of figure it out. So I crashed around for about a decade. Um, But during that time, I was able to explore all kinds of other things. I became a burlesque dancer, (laughs) lived this whole other lifestyle. um, Which which makes sense considering your family. Yes. And in retrospect, I'm really glad that I took... Like I I meet these people that are very sort of career focused and, you know, they go to college and then they go right into an MFA and then they go to like a internship and they're, they're very sort of focused on being writers. But if you don't actually live very much, I find that you don't often don't have as much interesting things to say, you know, like writing is an art and a craft and it's great to be concentrating on it, but you also have to get out and meet people and fall down and go different places and sort of experience, um, life a little bit. Yeah. Um, No, I 100% agree. Whenever I've worked with young writers, I've always told them, I can't teach you how to be a writer in a class or in a workshop. Like mm -hmm. you have to figure out what you want to say. Then Mm -hmm. it's just, then it's just a vocation. But Mm -hmm. what you want to say and how you want to say it, that comes from living your life. Yeah. And, you know, it's a terrible way to teach. And I I guess there are other people (laughs) that can teach it, but, like, that's how I came to writing. Well, I think it's right that that's how you sort of land on your voice, and that's really what makes an interesting writer. You know, you can have a really great formal style, but if you don't have any heart or any new perspective on the world, then it's not going to be that interesting. My sister was a concert pianist and she would talk about, you know, there are great technical players and then there are people who are not great technical players, but who just play with the soul and you can't stop looking at them and listening Mm -hmm. to them. And, you know, as not a formally trained musician, I'm like, I know that when I see it, but I can't point. And she's like, oh yeah, like they're missing this, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever, this isn't as clean. And I'm like, yeah, but she's like, yeah. I'm like, I get it in writing. You can read somebody's work and you're like, oh yeah, this is like, I mean, I've told folks, um, uh, yeah, Jossie's new book is coming out, uh, Transcendental mm-hmm. Kingdom. When I read Homegoing, like that was, oh, the, that was the best I book. Yeah. I had to stop. It was so unbearable. I, I keep wanting to go back to it, but I just like, it ripped my heart out. And so, I mean, it was so beautiful. I had to, I mean, it is both structurally a beautiful book. So I'm not saying that she, but she has both of them, right? Like it's both yeah. structurally this brilliant book, but also this is a story, right? And I was just, I told folks the other day, I mean, I've actually told this story to everybody who I've recommended the book to. I had to mm-hmm. stop reading it in public because mm-hmm. I was ugly crying 
at every mm-hmm. chapter. And in America today, there's nothing scarier than a middle-aged white guy <laughs> weeping uncontrollably in public by himself, right? Like this seems like the precursor for something terrible that's about to happen. And I could only read a chapter at a time because it was just too fucking beautiful. Like, yeah, it was amazing. So like, I get it in the writing world. They're like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, you know, oh, and she was 26 and it was her first book. And I'm like, everything about I this know. is hateful. <laughs> I know. I know. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. But also brilliant. So you're sort of coming up, you're, you're 15, you're in school, you're sort of bookish and like, are you shy? Are you quiet? Like, are you, since mm-hmm. you sort of grew up by yourself with not around other kids? Yeah. And, um, I dealt with a lot of pretty intense bullying, um, in the way that the kid that shows up for career day dressed as Brunhilde is probably making themselves a little bit of a target. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so I had some complicated experiences with my peers and it made me feel very shy and, um, kind of ostracized. And I, I mean, I think that is also part of a, can be part of a writerly personality. You know, once you feel sort of on the outside or feel yourself as an outsider, you're very much sort of um, turn into like an observer. And I feel like that mechanism of getting through the world really kicked in early for me. Um, yeah, I actually, ar- around that time, I went through a really intense period of being a classical ballerina oh. um, because I love... I love intense discipline (laughs) things. Um, So I like started ballet when I was 14 and in two years I had caught up on eight years of training and was about to make my professional debut, um, which was crazy. My toenails fell off and I was never eating and I was just, I was a wreck. Um, But I really, I, I like putting, I like working towards artistic forms, I guess. Um, so yeah, that's also when my parents were like, we don't know what to do with this kid. (laughs) What is she doing? Yeah. And that's, uh, the real deal. Like catching up is not a thing that happens. Like that's not a thing that happens. No, it was a little bit demented. Um, to be honest. (laughs) Yeah. I'm, I mean, you look back on it and I have this through sports, but you just sort of also have a question of like, where were the adults? Yeah. I don't know why they let me do that. I was really crazy, but I was pretty unhappy in school and was kind of lonely and isolated. And it was like at least something to funnel all of this into. Sure. Um, so I was, you know, writing a lot in journals and dancing a lot. And then I decided to go to college at 16. I dropped out of high school. Oh my God. Now you're the second person that I've talked to who's dropped out of high school. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and went to this weird little school in Massachusetts for young scholars called Simon's Rock, um, which is just for really smart, weirdo kids. It's like 200 kids and you start doing a liberal arts. It's connected to Bard College. So you start your liberal oh. arts education when you're yeah. 16. Oh, so it's like a it's like a community college for 16 year olds. Yes. Mm-hmm. Like Except that it's a, also residential, yeah. yeah. So you I mean, go and yeah. you stay in dorms. I mean, that's um, a, I know a, rude, or a crude approximation, but like that's what it's the entryway to college. So you're getting college credits as a 16 year old, like it's full yeah. on college credits. It was just full on college. I don't, I don't have a high school degree, a diploma, or a whatever that thing is a, called. The a GED? test you take. Yeah, I don't have any certification from high school. I just straight up started college at 16 and just went. And they just let you do that. Yeah. 
<laughs> I mean, it's as a former middle school teacher like that, my training way back in a million years ago is in that like, good for you. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I think it's a great thing for kids yeah. that want to do that. You know, yeah. why make them sit around? Um, it ended up being a little intense. You know, the kids were all kind of crazy. We we're very young. We had no supervision because the whole school was like, you, we treat you like college students. Sure. Um, so there was a lot of drugs and crazy kids staying up all night, you know, debating Nietzsche and like just kind of losing their minds together. Um, it's but, both good you know, and bad. Yeah, it was definitely of my people. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, it is, I find the world to be interesting in this way because I've told people, like, I never fit into the check boxes that mm-hmm. civilized, you know, society has put in and said, this is how we work. Like, my whole life has been like, I'm going to walk through the door and they're like, it's a round door. And I smack my head and I'm like, well, shit, there's just, there's never a time I feel like I can walk through the world and like, it's going to be set up in a way that makes sense to me. And this sort of sounds like your life. Yes. No, I, I totally identify (laughs) with that feeling. And in fact, I, I got kind of messed up at school and ended up having to drop out for a little bit. And so there was this period of time where I was 17 and I was both a high school and a college dropout (laughs) for about six months, (laughs) which I thought was pretty, I was feeling pretty accomplished. Yeah. You were making it. You were, you were making it. You were on your way. (laughs) But then eventually I transferred to Bard regular and, and managed to finish everything. So then I was 20, I was done with college. And I, I felt like I'd already kind of lived a whole lifetime. Yeah. You had to be the most interesting 20-year-old in a room of other 20-year-olds. <laughs> I don't know about that, but I was I was doing stuff. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm, I'm telling you. I wasn't. I sounded like a question. That was not a question. Because they would have all still been juniors and seniors in college. Yeah. You would yeah. have dropped out of school twice. You would have been, you know, almost a professional ballet dancer. You would have been one. Th- and I'm assuming yeah. right around this time is when you're going to start writing again. Like... You come out of yep. depression from not being able to write the great American novel as a teenager. <laughs> well, it actually took me a couple more years. Um, I graduated and was sort of like, well, I'm not on my career path to being this great American novelist that I'm supposed to be. So what should I do instead? Um, and around that time, I read The Vagabond by Colette, um, which is about um, a period in Colette's life where she like left her first husband and wasn't writing and became a showgirl in like music hall Paris. And I was like that, that's what I should do. Cause I'm also not writing. I'm kind of depressed. I'm going to be a showgirl. So I moved home to new Orleans and just became like a party girl and did go-go dancing with the sixties band and helped uh, put on burlesque shows and just sort of lived the nightlife for uh, another three or four years. <laughs> so you, you took a gap year, you took gap years after college, after finishing college early. <laughs> Yes, you I let did. everybody else catch up with you. You're like, I've done all your uh-huh. bullshit, so I got some time <laughs> on my hands. And ridiculously, I still had to have a fake ID at this point in my life. Right. I was only 20 years old. Yeah. Well, also, I mean, I think we're around the same age. Like, that was also at a time, like, when that was not really hard to get. No, no, I'm certainly in New Orleans. I think we made my fake IDs on, like, it was like a laser printer was yeah. all you needed. And that yeah. was, like, 
You could just yeah. alter them on the computer. Yeah. And then you just go get like get a laminator or like go to yeah. Kinko's or something. It's like, can you laminate? Like, wait till the, the college kid is behind there and not an adult. You're like, will you laminate this for me? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. exactly. I mean, that is what I was told. I do not remember doing any of those things. But <laughs> so you're are you living at home? Like, or do you uh no, I moved in with some friends. Um, and this is another one of those great things about New Orleans, or at least it was 20 years ago, was that we were able to rent basically this like tumble down mansion. You know, it was like in horrible disrepair, but me and four other girls moved in and we each had our own bedroom and our own like dressing room in addition to like, (laughs) and like balconies and like these grand stairs. And it was so cheap and we didn't have air conditioning or heat or anything, but it didn't really matter. And um, <laughs> we just, we got to live in this just gorgeous space. And our, we actually were living on Elysian Fields Avenue, which I love the name of that street. <laughs> right. I mean, how do you not? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so it was a really, it was just like a perfect New Orleans kind of moment. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like a song. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And are the girls you're living with, like, are they, they have to also be into arty stuff? Like, these are not yeah. people with, like, regular nine-to-five jobs. No, these are strippers and burlesque dancers, yeah. and I think one was a journalist and one was a photographer. Yeah, it was a very arty, kind of wild girl scene. Yeah. And so, as you're in that, like, as you sort of move back, I had a version, I had my version of that when I moved to Austin, which is why Austin is, like, mm-hmm. sort of my adult home. That's another good place to do it. (laughs) Yeah. And like, I did it in the mid nineties, like right before all Mm -hmm. this stuff, you know, it was sort of getting big, but I'm friends with everybody from that time period. And now we're older and it's just like, you know, we sit around like, did that really happen? (laughs) Totally. Totally. I didn't think I'd make it this far in life. And also like, how do you have a house? Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, all of me and all of the aging New Orleans hipsters, everybody now like owns the record stores and owns the bars, but it's just still like, what? We're so old. Yeah. It's the the Gen X thing is real. Like it yes. is because I'm assuming, I mean, I was sort of running around in the zine literary poetry slam reading world. And it was mm-hmm. just sort of like so DIY. Like that was a time when that was sort of the entryway into things. Like if you weren't one of the mm-hmm. people that were going to the whatever schools, like you just kind of started making shit and doing stuff, right? Like mm-hmm. lowbrow culture was the way into highbrow culture. Yeah, totally. I mean, that was the same with burlesque at that time. It was like had just yeah. started and everybody made their own costumes and everybody did their own research. And, and it was like a very, very DIY sort of Bust magazine, like former Riot Girl, you know, all of these sort of movements felt very sort of low culture-y, do-it-yourself. And it was really fun. Yeah. And I had such a good time doing it. And it was so creative and everybody was so kind of invested in making the scene be what they wanted it to be. Yeah. I mean, that's the, that was my point, right? Was That was the entryway. Like, it was these were people that needed to be creative and... And they were going to do, it was a time and place where you could both afford to live, you know, Mm -hmm. wherever, um, you Mm -hmm. didn't need to make a million dollars to pay your rent. And there were just large groups of us. I I don't know if that's, I don't know if it's just because we're Gen X and like, that was the zeitgeist. I don't know what it Mm -hmm. was, but you hear a version of this story, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, from a lot of different people. 
yeah, some people were doing it in Portland. People were doing it in San Francisco and Austin and New yeah. Orleans, like all of the, all of the cities where that were still cheap enough to yeah. sustain artists. Yeah. And like I was doing it in Cincinnati and then I left to go to Austin just because I'm like, well, I'm going to go find these other people. And then I ended up in San Francisco, like mm-hmm. you're sort of like you, you make the rounds, right? You're like, mm-hmm. well, I know where the places are. And like, totally. Oh God, Portland back then, Portland in the mid nineties. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. And that was, <laughs> it was one of my favorite places to go. And it was weird as shit. I never hit the Pacific Northwest. We were more New Orleans, Memphis, Austin, sort of like that circuit. Yeah. But then everybody came down from San Francisco or Brooklyn or yeah. Yeah. And now it's, I don't know if you've been to Asheville, like Asheville's threatening to become oh, one of those places. Uh-huh. I've <laughs> yeah. heard. Yeah. It's funny. Like, even though I'm out of like, I'm sort of, you know, we're adults now. I'm like, well, here's where the new place is. I'm going to roll in there as like a 50 year old, like, what's uh-huh. going on? Hey, cool. cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, where's the zine making shop? <laughs> uh-huh. I totally feel that. <laughs> <laughs> so you do that for three or four years. Like what sort of, what, what's the Kickstarter out of that? Um, what got me out of that was a friend from college, like a, another one of these kind of um, uh, smart weirdo 16-year-olds, um, was living in New York City, and she wanted to start a literary magazine. Um, so she called me up and said, let's start a magazine together. And I was like, okay, I could do that. Um, <laughs> and so I moved up to New York again. And our magazine idea sort of quickly mutated um, this is another crazy story. Um, somebody that I knew was working as an architect and was working on an apartment in the national arts club in New York city, which is like this old kind of crazy, um, like 19th century social club, um, that had these spaces in it. And this millionaire had like an extra apartment that he didn't want to renovate, but he didn't want, but he wanted to keep. And somehow through like a friend of a friend, and my friend was a very sexy uh, little blonde girl. Anyway, he was like, you guys can use this to do your literary project. Um, and so we were like, amazing. It was, it was a totally derelict space, um, like some weird old artist person had been living in there. And had, it was sort of like a hoarder's space at that point. And uh, me and my friend um, renovated it ourselves. We like learned how to use floor sanders. We like got all of our art school friends to help us build bookshelves. We like built a bar and we turned it into like a literary club and salon. (laughs) That's amazing. That's amazing. And so we did this like by hook uh, and crook, right? Everything was just like, do it yourself or broken or like covered up with Sharpie or like hide the whatever. Um, get your friend that does contracting to pay his bills to like help us with the sink. So, but we, we did enough sort of like theatrical um, sort of shimmy shamming around it to make it look pretty good. And so we were like, we want this to be a space where people can come and talk about books and like rent workspace to write. And we'll do readings and lectures in the evenings. And it was kind of like, you know, it wasn't the wing, but it was like that concept of 15 years before. Um, and then it like took off like nobody's business. It became like insanely successful. We never made any money, but somehow all of a sudden all of these like movie stars and fashion models were like coming to 
poetry readings in our like ratty little space filled with like roaches. And like, it was, it was really surreal. So we ran this crazy literary club in this old like social club, crazy mansion place in Manhattan for like three years. <laughs> That's amazing. That's a, what was it called? It was called the accompanied library. Um, and it was this really special moment in New York, like kind of, it was like 2004, 2005, 2006. So right before the financial crash where like, there was all of this money floating around. Like if you could sort of scam and charm and like get to the people, like people were just kind of like, I don't know. They wanted to like support new things or be part of the cool kids or like, you know, it was all this like, you know, we'll have this literary reading, but then like our friend who sometimes like helps for brand managing for Adidas gets us like a thing where Adidas pays for the boot and like where you could like kind of take advantage of corporate stuff in order to use it to do your own project. Mm -hmm. Like it's the sort of thing that could never happen now um, <laughs> in this way. But there was a time where like New York felt very, it felt very like fruitful again in this way where you could like actually start projects and build out weird art spaces. Um, Some yeah. of that is in a response to, I was at Wired during the boom and the first crash mm -hmm. and New York was trying desperately to create its, you know, they had Silicon Alley. We had Silicon mm -hmm. Valley. They had Silicon Alley. So when the crash happened, it really hit Silicon Valley and it hit New York, not as bad as us, just because all the money was out there. And I think mm -hmm. a lot of that money was probably coming from people that were like, now is the moment where we have a chance to usurp some of what's happening out on the West Coast. Mm -hmm. So people were like, you know, you're in the financial district. They're like, we have access to capital. So let's do yeah, that. And, and they all like were desperate to like latch on to like cool culture yes. in this way where like we were the cool kids yes. that knew the artists and the <laughs> DJs and the clubs and the books and like the, and poet. Well, I mean, nobody ever thought the poets were cool. The poets were my thing. Right. And I loved that every Sunday I would bake like hundreds of scones myself and bring them to our poetry readings where we had like, bought all of these mismatched teacups from thrift stores. And so I would sit there making like hundreds of pots of tea and giving everybody fresh scones for our poetry readings on Sundays. And so it was really kind of magical. Um, but it was also one of these things that like it couldn't last. And it was also built on a lot of like moxie and hope and poor business sense. <laughs> and, right. like, Let's it was be honest. destined to crash. No business sense. No business yeah, sense. No. There's <laughs> One of the things that I have laughed about in my career is somehow I tell people I used to be a writer, but then I started working at like magazines and I ended up building things and running stuff because I mm -hmm. was the only one that understood math. Oh right? my it's God. Like, like all of a sudden we were like, a disaster. Yeah. Our 501c3 application was like the, the like weight around our necks like it was like so far beyond us to figure out how to file these papers yeah. and every month it was like if we don't do this we can't become a nonprofit. if we can't become a nonprofit, we can't fundraise we don't have any like income source and then we would sit down and last like 10 minutes be like let's go have a drink i can't 
<laughs> it is. We started a literary organization in Indiana in 2014, and we all had this. You know, we had like 450 people in it. We had retreats and we literary magazine, put out books. Uh-huh. I've paid for it all because, like, we'd sit down to try to do stuff and like getting the other partners to do things. Just like, yeah, we're just gonna yeah. ride this till it crashes. Like, you just know, like, yeah, just like this is the <laughs> DIY stuff. Like, this is not meant to be the the next Amazon. This is just gonna be yeah. a nice comet. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. That's a perfect way to describe it. It's going to be fantastic. And in the future, we'll all look back on it and be like, wasn't that amazing that this, yeah. these factors came together to create this amazing space? But in the moment, it was just, uh, th- we used to just sort of like shove our mail into the bottom drawer of our filing cabinet, you know, like, uh, we'll deal with all that later. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So we ended up being taken to court because we hadn't managed to pay our rent. And so we got evicted. And so it all turned into like a total nightmare. But it was a really cool thing to have done. And this is gets back to being a writer. Like these are the things like it's not just about reading. You also have to immerse yourself in the culture of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And I've had the discussions with people like there's I think there's I have many ways that I delineate people and one of them is there's the business of writing people that like have the careers that like sit down with their agents and stuff and they're like what's selling in the market and like this is what we do so let's write that which is a skill in writing and i have like Hmm. i don't i don't privilege that or or disparage it and then there's people that are like okay i'm in this thing and here's what i'm going to say and like i don't really have the market consideration and i'm going to go with smaller independent presses or people that like you know and and every book will sort of be its own thing Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I mean, not to plug my own books, but so my first novel was about that experience was about the creation of the literary club and sort of our whole rise and fall because people kept coming to things and just looking around and being like, what is going on here? Somebody has to write a book about this. This place is insane. Um, And so then I was able to kind of, in that way of like drawing from life where I think it's great to go out and have these experiences for my first book, I was able to just go back and tell this totally insane story that I had just lived through. It, but it's not really insane, though. It it's felt insane. insane at the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, other people will look at that and, and feel like it's insane. But um, is this the Little Clan? Is that the book? Yes. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I think back about the crazy stuff that we did, and yeah, it, it only seems crazy in retrospect. I mean, even when we were in it, it was like we sort of knew like, God damn, this is a time and place. Like mm-hmm. you sort of just knew like drink this in because this is not going to be forever. Yes, definitely that experience. Um, and you know that it's shaping you in ways that other people who haven't gone through this will never truly understand. Yeah. Yeah. I have a whole file of my press clippings when I'm 24 years old. of just like, cause everybody wanted to write articles about us. Um, yeah. And it's just such a surreal thing to go back and flip through um, this whole sort of another little mini lifetime that I got yeah. to experience. It's, do you have this? Exp- I have this experience all the time, and I suspect you're going to tell me yes. I feel like I've been four different people in my life. Oh, absolutely. You know, like you just look and I'm like, oh, God, I don't even know. Like, I feel like Doctor Who, like, I know that person is in me, but that is not Mm -hmm. who this thing is anymore. And Mm -hmm. if that person met me today, he'd be so fucking disappointed in me. (laughs) (laughs) 
I mean, that's one of the things that I find really fun about writing is that I feel like with each book, I get to kind of inhabit a different one of those people for a while. Um, and it kind of gives a, a kind of clarity and um, helps me kind of make sense of these different aspects of my personality yeah. by, by transmogrifying them into a character and really sort of living that experience again through writing. Um, because yeah, in my first book, it's like a very shy, nerdy, kind of too smart, weird girl that likes to read classics all the time and do all that. And then my second book is this kind of much wilder, self-destructive punk rock stripper. And it's like, all those aspects are in me. I don't understand how they all fit together. Um, but through books, I can kind of start to make sense of all the different pieces. It's one of the premises that I have on the program is that every writer becomes a writer because they're trying to figure something out. Like that's mm -hmm. from an early, like we're just naturally curious and things don't make sense to us. And so it is, how do we deconstruct things and take it from this idea and turn it into a concrete thing? Mm -hmm. I don't know if I've ever talked to anybody. Well, I do know. I have never talked to anybody on this program. Who, like that question is, who are you? Like both the books mm -hmm. are, who are you? Like these are really fictionalized yeah. you processing yeah and I mean maybe that is unfortunately a little self-absorbed but for me it's like the first step towards looking at the world around you is kind of looking through yourself and yeah. sort of okay what is the prism through which I'm going to interpret my experience and, and this world that I'm in and for me it's kind of figuring out like who is this who is this observer that sees the world and yeah. how do I sort of make sense of that uh, that does not sound self-absorbed at all to me. <laughs> self-absorbed would be to not ever even consider that, right? Mm -hmm. Like is to just not even have the ability to understand that like, I mean, this is Whitman, right? Like you've taken leaves of grass. This is the most literary shit I've ever said on this show. But you've taken, you've taken, <laughs> right? You're like, you've taken, it out of you. You have, you have. <laughs> All my fucking bluster about like, I'm not pretentious. I'm like, okay, so. I did 20 make, minutes with me and yeah. Whitman. I, I, I literally have annotated the entirety of leaves of grass. So I have oh, my that's moment. wonderful. Um, but the I am large, I contain multitudes, right? Like this mm -hmm. is like you have taken that line and said, well, yeah, okay, well, let's look at those. And like what a gift to not only have, but you know people are going to read those and see like if they read the books, right? It's like, oh, yeah, like I recognize the multitudes of, our, of myself. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I feel like the first step in inquiry is to kind of start with start with step one, which is, me and who am I and who, who am I as an observer, as a participant in the world, um, as an actor in the world. Um, because if you don't start questioning that, I think you're right that you can kind of run the risk of assuming your perspective is, is the default. And yeah, I think that can be dangerous. <laughs> you're talking to a middle-aged white man. Like I am literally <laughs> the embodiment of the problem. With that, right? <laughs> like, uh, uh -huh. So yeah, you know, like it is, it, it, I find that to be like one of the best reasons to write. I, I'm a Fitzgerald fan. You can't mm. see, but I have like the last line of Gatsby. I have an ent mm. my entire living room is like sort of built around that jazz age stuff. He wrote the oh, same the goddamn beautiful book. Beautiful and the damned. I love yeah. that. But he wrote the same goddamn book like eight times. <laughs> no, it's very heartening. <laughs> yeah, like he just like uh, I was talking to uh, Hafiza Jeter, and you know she's also a Fitzgerald fan, and we were just sort of laughing, like yeah. You know, he like that is what he's done. He's just sort of continually deconstructed his life and trying to make sense of, you know, 
class privilege, like his own failings and stuff. So all that is to say, no, I don't feel like that's self-absorbed at all. (laughs) Particularly when you're a round peg in a, you know, or a square peg trying to get in a round hole. Like if you're people like us, things don't make sense in the world. Mm-hmm. Nothing really makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> no, I agree. So you go to court, you're booted out of the place. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so then what? Uh, so then what? So then I decided it's time to get out of town for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's when I moved to Austin. Oh, um, so you lived in Austin. Yeah, I went to Austin for a year. When? Um, and that, let's see, that was probably 2006 okay. or 2007. So long after I've gone. Yeah. I'm like, maybe we ran into each other in one of those weird all night parties. <laughs> no, no, no. And also, I, by the time I got there, I was kind of done with the parties for a yeah. while. And that was when I really decided to kind of buckle down um, and start writing. So I decided to start writing practice novels with the idea that like you can't get good at anything unless you do it. Um, so that first year I wrote three books. Wow. <laughs> with keep, fully with the keeping in line with, with your crazy let's with a little bit thing. of intensity. Yeah. yeah. Um, with the full intent of just putting them in a drawer and forgetting about them with the idea that like you must have a certain amount of bad writing to get through before you can even start to be a good writer. Um and so that was what I was doing there. I was also working for the Chronicle, which was oh, fun. I yeah. was review, reviewing uh, plays for the Austin Chronicle. I think um, there was a woman, I don't know if she's still there, uh, Kate X. Messner. Messer? Messner? Hmm. She was I my editor when I lived down there. Oh, fun. Yeah. Um, so I started to do some journalism, some cultural journalism, and yeah. started to get much more serious about writing. And that was when I started applying to MFA programs thinking that okay I'm sick of being like a weirdo on my own track it's kind of too much for me like I want to figure out how you do this the right way um which I just wanted like um kind of the validation of feeling like this is what I'm supposed to be doing in order to pursue this career um because I was just worried about feeling like too much of a of a freak weirdo um, so yeah, so then I went, I got in, well, the first year I didn't get in anywhere. I applied to 12 schools and they all rejected Oof. me. Oof. Um, which is when I first started learning the like number one, most important lesson as a writer, which is just perseverance. <laughs> so yeah. the next year I applied to them all again, um, and got into three. And so you start to realize, oh, there's a certain amount of arbitrariness in, right. in success and right. you just have to start getting used to um, getting used to rejection and, and to stop holding um, when you're, when you're working alone a lot, I think you can start to hold your writing in a kind of precious way, you know, that it's very special and that, you know, people don't understand it. And so I started to learn this process, which has since become really useful, which is just of putting yourself out there constantly and putting your writing out there and sort of making the the jump to maybe like a more professional attitude about it, where it's like, it's not just my secret soul that I'm pouring out on a page, but also this is something I want to do as a job. And I want to learn how to do it in a yeah. way that maybe has a, a chance of success. Isn't it interesting that because this part of the story is one that I hear a lot. Like you said, you knew you wanted to be a writer at the beginning and then there, 
everybody that I've talked to, everybody has said at some point, like I needed some, one, I felt like I didn't understand how to do the thing that I wanted to do, Mm -hmm. but for a very specific kind of person, it's also, I need the validation Mm -hmm. that I'm a writer. Yeah. It's really pretty profound um, to, to then it's like what finally allowed me to start calling myself a writer, even though this is what I've been doing since I was eight years old. Right. Um, But you're suddenly in an environment where it's understood that this is who you are and this is what you do. Um, And that, and that really gave me a lot more confidence and it just allowed me to start feeling, I mean, everybody always feels like an imposter, I think, but you kind of just start doing it anyway. Um, which is really useful. Yeah. It's also how you got started in the beginning. Yeah. Right. It was just like, well, shit, let's just do it. And somehow we forget that along the way. Mm -hmm. Right. Like suddenly you're like, well, now I'm an adult and now I'm this age and I should be doing this. And it's like, nah, just fucking do it. If you want to be an author, there's not really a like there's not like five steps to doing it right like (laughs) no my husband is a teacher and like his whole career has been set up from the beginning you know he went to graduate school after graduate school he did this he became a ta he got hired he his contract he gets like performance reviews like he just keeps moving forward in this way whereas i either have a career or i don't depending on what happens in the next like round of submissions and it's it's very it takes a lot of stamina yeah (laughs) and the question you know I've designed this show for writers about writers around writers because one I know the trauma of this identity (laughs) is like terrible and like the thing I never ask a writer when I meet them is like uh, what have I read like what have you done I've read right because Uh right that that's it it assumes that that's the only thing that makes you a writer, which is such a mm-hmm. fucking terrible question to ask. No, uh, it's horrible. And it, it's, it's dependent on so many things. And, yeah. you know, I've noticed this as I've achieved more of those things where it was like, once I get a book published, then I'll be a writer. And then you get a book <laughs> published and I mean, it starts probably starts before once I get an MFA, I'll be a writer. Yeah. And then you get an MFA and you're like, once I have my first book published, yeah. I'll, you know, then I'll have a career. But then you publish a book and you're like, Oh, if I, if I don't get my second book published, I won't, have a career anymore so then you're like okay if I have my second book published yeah. I'm really a writer now and it, that actually never seems to stop you know <laughs> you're only yeah yeah it's it it is a it is a weird space that I feel like is unlike any other art form and I don't know if that's true or not because I don't do the other ones so I don't have to mm-hmm. live the daily life I'm an actor or, you know any of those kinds of things but writing is just so amorphous as a mm-hmm. thing that oh, I don't know. I feel like actors have it really terrible too, because they're not actors unless someone casts them, you know, they actually true. have to be in a play. So like yeah. somebody has to decide they're worth worthy of being an actor. I mean, I think about actors all the time for some reason <laughs> because it seems so hard to just sit in your house being an actor, but you're not until somebody picks you. Yeah. You, know, you, have but to you be. can do community theater or like people do pop-ups. Like they can make things in a way that, that writers can't. I mean, you yeah, can self-publish your book, but it's like yeah. people that are asking you that question aren't like, Oh, you self-publish, you're a writer. They're yeah. like, Oh, you've. Yes. Okay. Yeah. You know, like no shit at the turn of the, you know, the turn of the 19th century, like all those people were self-publishing. Like, yeah, them, totally. like what's the, you know, you got, Ah. So anyway, yeah. it's just a weird sort of thing. So you get the M- you go to Columbia, right? 
Yep. Yep. Yeah. I came back to New York and went to Columbia. So, so you basically have two homes. It's New York and New Orleans. Yes. Like, I just bounce back and forth. Yeah. Really. Depending on what you're running from. <laughs> yes, yeah. pretty much. <laughs> New Orleans, I realized is not a place where I could ever take the next step to be like a sort of responsible adult. Yeah. I just, it's not a place that is yeah. conducive to that for me. Yeah. That's why I don't um, go to Austin. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, if my life, if my life falls apart up here, I will definitely pack up and go home and do something crazy and yeah. it'll be fabulous. But for now, yeah. <laughs> it's like I can't I have to stay away. I mean, I still go home probably twice a year to visit family and friends, but not to live. Right. It's a drop in. And then like, I got it. And then do you have those moments where you're like, Oh God, I miss this so much. And then you get back home and you're like, man, I'm glad I'm back home now. Like I'm glad I'm oh, back yeah. in Brooklyn. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Oh yeah. No, I get back to Brooklyn and I'm like, Oh my God, please somebody give me some kale and some like green tea. I'm going right. to die. Right. I don't have the stomach for it anymore. I'm too old. Yeah. Why <laughs> like, do they fry everything? Why is everything oh, fried? <laughs> everything is fried or covered in butter. And every yep. like time you meet someone, it's like four cocktails. And like, yeah. I've turned into such a wimp. Yeah. Like I want to come back to Brooklyn and have some salad and take a yoga class or right. something, which is not my usual state of mind. Right. <laughs> Only when I've been to New Orleans for a week. These things happen. So you finished the MFA. Is that like, is that like when you start working on the first book? Yeah. The, my first book was my MFA thesis. Oh, um, you're one so of those I, well, I was just, I was much older than everyone in my MFA sure. cohort. By the time I got in, I was in my thirties. Um, you were there everybody else, everybody else was younger. And I was like, I need to move along. Um, yeah. and I wasn't in, I was just in a different stage of life. I wasn't in the kind of like figure out who I am and what kind of writer I want to be. I was yeah. like, I'm here for just like a little professional buffing <laughs> to yeah. figure out how to take my next steps. Um, to make friends with teachers, to, you yeah. know, to make connections. Um, I, I honestly think that so many of my fellow students just wasted their time there because it's very expensive and like they just, it's a good place to be able to kind of finalize your, your journey. But yeah. I think it's not a great place to just start figuring out who you are. Um, I, when I was a professor, I used to tell students all the time, like you go to graduate school for two reasons. One, if you're like in a place where I grew up, your company will pay for you to go to graduate school so that you can get a raise and blah, blah, blah. But your mm -hmm. company pays for that. That's one reason. Mm -hmm. Two, it's a master's. So you know what mm -hmm. you want to do. Now you want to figure out how to be excellent at the thing that you do, not to mm -hmm. figure out what is the thing I want to be good at. Like, yeah. yeah. Figure out like which of your professors will put you in touch with their agents because yes. your friends and your grownups and everybody's just like moving ahead with their yep. careers. Um, so that was pretty much where I was. Um, I was also right at the undergraduate school. I was pregnant as well. So I graduated and had two babies and wrote my first book all in the space of like four years or something. It was that's so you literally don't do anything a little bit. Like if once you I jump in the pool, not. you're like, where's the deepest part of this pool that I can jump into? <laughs> I know. I had totally skipped the fact that like the first time that I ran to New Orleans and was being wild and crazy, I eloped with this brilliant artist guy and had this crazy first marriage. So then by the time I was like... <laughs> you did skip that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I was on to my second husband <laughs> by this point. Um, and I was like, if I'm going to, I don't, 
I didn't care that much about having kids, but I was kind of like, I'm 32. If I'm going to have them, might as well have them now. Um, and so I spent, and my kids are only 18 months apart. So it was a very, very intense process. (laughs) A lot of, um, nursing and editing and crying. (laughs) I would assume many times at the same time. (laughs) Yes. Just all over the place. I mean, I have a very, very supportive husband who was always like, he's very helpful about me trying to get my things done. Uh, I suggest, I think that all artists should marry people that aren't artists. (laughs) Like having like a sort of much less intense kind of well-adjusted, easygoing, academic in the house like has made all the difference yeah. in me actually being able to publish books yeah um so I mean, you either either that or you just have to realize like you're gonna be f scott and zelda and that it doesn't end well like it'll be yeah. a fun time but it won't be a long time you know? that was much more my first marriage yeah <laughs> I, I, yeah figured that's <laughs> yeah that that was the model i was fo- i was following in fact i was reading the beautiful and the damned while our marriage was falling apart and just emoting intensely and I had become a, a bit of a drunk on cheap champagne was all I would drink probably because I was trying to be like Zelda Fitzgerald. Yeah. Holy shit. I'm like, yeah, I don't think there's a probably about it. <laughs> so yeah, that was a much more youthful phase of my life. And now I find just being a little less self-destructive and romantic and all that um, actually allows you to get a lot more books written. <laughs> yeah. And frankly, it's more real. Yes. At the end of the yeah. day, like this is the the grand thing that I've come to as as I remind myself that like twenty five year old me would beat the shit out of forty eight year old me. <laughs> Even though twenty five year old me never went to the gym, right? And I go all the time now. Is that like, you know, functionally that was a world that wasn't mine. Like I I was inhabiting this thing that I thought and not mm-hmm. this thing that I am. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much. You're sort of living a persona or yeah. sort of a fantasy of what. Um, a wild, destructive, brilliant, depressed writer person was. Right. Which is not sustainable. No, no, because all those books end with, you know, Gatsby shot in the pool. Exactly. It doesn't end happy for anybody. So you're, you're, you decide to have two babies uh, finish an MFA and, and write your first book. Um, mm-hmm. how, what, how long was the process? from like the time you started the book to the time it was published. I always love following um, numbers out. Yeah, that, hard to say, maybe five years. So, I mean, it was a long, it, like, that's a... Yeah, because I started submitting it during um, workshops at graduate school, um, and then I had to take a semester off graduate school because I had a baby, sure. and then I went back to graduate school and wrote some more, and then took another semester off because I had another baby, and then went back to finish some more. And so, definitely, it took... It took a long time. I, yeah. I felt that book was just, oh, it was really hard. It was it, really hard to get it done. You know, it's, but I, I always ask that question because people don't really, once you get into your career, right? Like the books are expected to come out like every two, two and a half years. And mm-hmm. So people that aren't writers think that like, oh, it takes like, what, like six months to write a book. And I'm like, well, no. And the first book never takes that long. The first yeah. book is a lifetime. You know, it's however it really long does. Lived, yeah, to the point that it gets published. It's why the first book is so powerful for so many people. I don't mean yeah. in terms of its impact, but just in terms of that like cathartic release of "Am I a Getting Writer?" Done. Yeah. yeah. And it's for like, me, it was 
pretty intense because uh, I, when I sold that first book, it was a two book deal. And the deadline for book two was exactly two years later, yeah. as you said. Yeah. <laughs> so I kind of panicked because I was not accustomed to writing at that pace. And also once your first book, you know, once you sign that contract, you're still not done with it. You know, there's still revisions and then there's editing and then there's copy editing and then there's promotion. And, yeah. and so a lot of that time is actually spent publishing the first book. Yeah. And then you have this other book due very, very soon. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's hard it's- to carve out the mental space for it. I, I One of the themes and things that has emerged from this show is we don't talk about the trauma of success, which is that first thing comes out and you're like, hooray! And almost immediately are like, oh, shit. Like, if the book isn't, if the first book isn't well-received, well, the second one has to be. If the yes. first book is really popular, it's like, well, how the fuck do I make it more popular? Like, there is yeah. no part of that because it's going so fast and because there's not a path and because there's not, you don't have mentors in your life unless you just find them who are Mm -hmm. 10 years ahead of you in your career, you're navigating this fast running river. Yeah. It's terrifying. (laughs) And it feels very overwhelming because at the same time, it's like the, the high point of your entire life, you know, it's what your whole life has been moving towards, which is a really intense feeling to experience. While at the same time, you're being thrown all of these things that you don't know how to do, like give interviews or go to these book fairs and, and sort of give author talks and elevator pitches, which is, you know, most authors are not PR people. So you're trying to figure out how you're supposed to sell yourself, how you're supposed to have this sort of public identity as a writer all the while it's like the most important thing that's ever happened and then are you getting good press are you getting enough press is the right press is are people buying and it becomes really difficult I find that and I give this advice to like every writer person I can think of is to like have a writing group or writer friends or like people that have been through the process and can kind of talk you through it because it's very destabilizing. Yeah, it's off of the program, and for everybody listening, none of you get invited to these. I <laughs> I invite all the writers on the program to come to a happy hour. I turn on. Mm-hmm. I just say, look, I'm gonna turn on the Zoom. You know, Friday from six thirty to eight thirty, and whoever wants to show up, show up. That last month, I had eighteen people show up. Oh, that's great. You know, none of them know each other, and like we're writers, so immediately there is this like you're just in it, right? Like everybody uh-huh. sort of has that same thing. Um, and it's great. And I was like, this, people show up for exactly that reason. And several of them said like, God, I forget how much the community of writers means to my own mental health, not mm-hmm. even advice, but just to know that like, Oh yeah. Yeah. I, you get it. You get it. Everyone goes through it. Like whatever level of success they are. And it always looks very different from the outside. And even knowing it all as well as I do, you know, on social media, you start to get confused and think that people are, are getting all of these things and they're being so successful. And every single person is experiencing the same ups and downs. And like, you know, they got all of this critical attention, but they didn't get any sales. And like yeah. just everyone is totally freaked out during yeah. the process of getting their books published. And, and it's, it's why, so reassuring to hear that. <laughs> I mean, it's why I tell people, like, I'm a writer's writer. Like, I don't design any of the stuff that I do for the public. I, the public shows mm-hmm. up. But, like, this is really about us because there's mm-hmm. just not that much real talk about, like, 
the trauma of this stuff and the loneliness of this stuff. And totally the, the isolation of it is very intense and kind of the obfuscation of this industry where it's all very mysterious and what editors tell you is weird and what agents tell you or don't tell you. And, and without having other writer friends to sort of talk through the process, I would lose my mind. Yeah. It feels like the business of writing was designed by people who are not writers. Like, I feel sometimes like we're plugged into this world where people were like, well, these people are creating stuff. Like, let's make a business around that. And then we show up and we're like, well, this isn't how I would have done any of this stuff. <laughs> yeah. And it's always, and it's changing all the time too. And, and now I often get the feeling that the people running the business of writing also have no idea what's going on yeah. because everything is changing and they're like, yeah. well, okay, this year we're having the writers do Instagram TV videos or, and you know, it's all crazy and nobody yeah. really knows what works anyway. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it's my- an industry based on the idea of like someone's rich uncle, like, you know, <laughs> has like a printing press in his yeah. study or something. Like, yeah. He's like, we should have a, I want to, I want to have a bookstore. Like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so- we're, we're doing it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so when did, uh, last call on Decatur street come out? Like that's, that, is that out now? Yeah, it's out now. It just came out, um, like August 11th. I think. Oh man. So it just happened. Just happened. Yeah. How are you feeling? Good. Um, there's always a little bit of kind of exhaustion post <laughs> post launch. Um, I'm very happy that it's out in the world. This book was really, really special to me, um, because it goes back to new Orleans and sort of goes back to a time in my life that was, that was really important and had a lot of questions I wanted to think about. Um, but it's, uh, it's exhausting. And it's also, you know, it's been kind of weird putting out a book in the middle of this global situation. Um, it's hard to uh, promote it. It feels very weird sort of getting on Twitter and it's like all these atrocities and things that you should really care about. And then having to say, also this book is out. But at the same time, the book is really special to me, and I do want it to have readers. Um, but I also care more about police brutality in the moment, you know. So it's right. like it's a very, it all felt very conflicted. Um, Just remember, we are large and we contain multitudes. You can both exactly. be exactly Black both. Lives Matter, <laughs> and you can start every tweet with in a little bit of good news today. <laughs> like, like exactly, you, you can see everybody on Twitter who's struggling with that because they're like, "I know the world's a dumpster fire, but here's some happy news." <laughs> like, I know it's it feel because I think for most writers, it feels very awkward to self-promote anyway. I yeah. think we tend to be a little bit more introverted, and you know, just getting out and bragging about yourself doesn't yeah. come very naturally. So that's already difficult, and then to do it in this moment where it just feels kind of egregious, it's just extra hard yeah. to make yourself do it. But at the same time, like I've been noticing myself being so grateful for the books that I'm reading, you know, like I need books right now so badly. And so that's just kind of what I keep trying to reassure myself (laughs) that it's worth doing what I do because there is actually a good that comes out of making art. But, um, there is, there's nothing that will get the writing community to turn against you so much as to announce to everybody that you're a writer. And that's why I think promoting is so difficult because it literally is you saying like, I'm a writer who did this thing. And all of a sudden, like the sort of petty jealousy that exists in all of us are like, are you a writer? You know? Oh, it's terrible. It's (laughs) terrible. You have to take a moment and be like, calm down, you. Like, Uh yes, they're a writer. (laughs) 
<laughs> and it's been one of the joys of doing the podcast is that I just get to be a cheerleader while I'm like sort of working on my stuff is to interview everybody and remind them that like, yeah, it's a dumpster fire, but like you said, art is important and you did a thing and like, we can't devalue that. Allowing people to be transported into other places is how change happens. It's how we mm -hmm. expand people's minds. It's how we help them see things that maybe they didn't see. So it feels hard, but the alternative is this fucking guy in office for four more years. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, no, and so hard. to me, it's like, yeah, get out there and like shoot your shot and do your thing. Like if you have a good and kind heart, like you'll be able to navigate both Black Lives Matter, you know, me too. And mm -hmm. Hey, I also did something. Mm -hmm. Well, that's very encouraging. Thank you. Well, <laughs> I'll try to hold on to that. Yes. And whenever I tell everybody on the program, whenever you forget that, send me a tweet and I'll like, I'll record like a 30 second, like it'll be my Shia LaBeouf, like do it. <laughs> oh, you're doing the Lord's work for all these writers out here. <laughs> well, this has been absolutely lovely. Thank you so much for spending time and thank you for rescheduling when I had, uh, you know, a moment. Uh, a little so while did ago. you have COVID? Uh, I did not. Um, I got, I was oh, sick. It, it did get into my, um, into, into the house of, uh, uh some family. So, uh, oh, I'm was, so sorry. Yeah. Everybody's fine. Um, but it was, you know, it was a rough, you know, it was a rough few weeks as you're not really sure oh, what's goodness. going on. Yeah. Yeah. That's very intense. Yeah. I mean, but you know, this is, everybody's dealing with it. So, yep. But thank you for coming on and thank you for rescheduling. Thank you and so much for having me. This was so delightful. Yes, you are so lovely. And I hope we can do this again soon. I hope we can get you at one of the happy hours. Oh, I would love to come. <laughs> All right. You have a good day. Thank you. You too. Well, there you have it. That was Iris Cohen, whose book, Last Call on Decatur Street is out now. She is fantastic and amazing. I wish that I had known her through her whole life because that's the kind of shit that gets me going, man. She just, like, does the business and never let the fact that she wasn't exactly sure where she was going stop her. So I hope you enjoyed listening to that as much as I enjoyed conducting that interview and as much as I am very excited to release it. Before we get out of here, a couple of reminders. If you like what we've done, do us those two favors that I ask you at the top of the show. Leave a written review wherever you listen to podcasts. Peer pressure works. Tell your friends. While you're at it, don't forget to check out the other programs on the Solid Listen Podcast Network, including the flagship Mother May I Sleep With podcast with host and our Solid Listen Podcast queen, Molly MacLear. And if you can't wait for our new episodes, they come out every Monday and Thursday. You can always catch us on Twitter and Instagram at The Writer's Jam. Until the next time, I will see you around the internet. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues. 
and it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.